Greetings, everyone. What pleases God the most? What can you do, what can I do, that is the most pleasing to God? Now, you and I are able to smile. We laugh, we chortle, we chuckle, we sneeze, we cough, in my case, quite frequently. We have all of these expressions of emotions that come out of our face, from our eyes and our mouth, our gesticulations, our body language, and our facial gestures. God certainly smiles. The Bible says he does. The Bible says he has a face. It says that his eyes are upon both the righteous and the wicked. It describes God as having body parts. It says his arm is not shortened, that it cannot save, etc. You see in the first chapter of Revelation where the glorified Christ is described, he is described as a glorified male human figure all the way from head to toe. We know from many scriptures that God literally does laugh and smile. What makes him smile the most that you can do? At what moment in the week in your life, things that you do, is God most cheered? At which time is he the happiest? There are those who would tell you it is when we engage in the church in what is called praise worship. Now, some of you don't know what that is. I do because, you see, I grew up in a little church in Eugene, Oregon, and on Scrabble Hill up near Salem, Oregon. My father was pastor of both for a time, which was the Oregon Conference of the Church of God, Seventh Day, <clears throat> and there were always people who believed in what is called today Pentecostalism. Now, Pentecostalism is a comparatively recent phenomena, mostly having to do with the United States after the Revolutionary War, and mostly having to do with the southeastern United States and the Bible Belt. It is not something which dates all the way back to the first century, uh, no matter what people may think, because they misread the second chapter of the book of Acts. There is no one in this audience who is not aware, at least marginally, by watching Sunday morning television or simply driving around the neighborhood and seeing the Pentecostal or the Foursquare or the Full Gospel or the uh, whatever it might be, a church that indicates that these people do engage in what is known as praise worship. When I was a child, it used to embarrass me out of my gourd because I remember Mrs. Fisher, when it was testimony time, we were dragged off to church as a little boy on Wednesday night, again on Friday night and then all afternoon on the Sabbath. And in those days, there were elements of Pentecostalism in the Church of God's Seventh Day. And every now and then, somebody would even burst out in a strange-sounding language and kind of babble a little bit. Nobody knew exactly what they were talking about, and they didn't either, but it sure was a lot of fun, judging by the huge smile on the face of the individual who was doing it. But what about you and me? When is God most pleased with human worship. Now, from time immemorial, people have recognized that there is a higher power. <clears throat> They've recognized that there is life out there all around us. Savages, in their stupidity and their ignorance, could certainly see the lightning flashing and hear the thunder crash or echo or roll, and they were in awe of that, in fear of it. Savages uh, noticed that when the rain came down, the little Green things grew in the springtime. They were aware of the seasons. They were in awe of the moon. They kept pretty well track of it, of different lunations, and had their own calendars. 
They knew a few things way back in ancient savagery, and a point as parenthetically inserted here is that the human family did not begin in savagery. It became that way as certain human nations, city-states, etc., beginning with Nimrod, drove other people away from the centers of civilization. And the farther they got away from civilization, the more information, the more education, the more knowledge they lost, the less they knew, and the more they reverted into a stage of savagery, which you can still find today. You can find in space age, Sydney, Australia, only a few hundred miles away, people living allegedly in what is called the Stone Age, and they are contemporaneous. They're side by side. The same thing could be said for the Moros, the island of Mindanao in the Philippines, where there are Stone Age civilizations where people don't plant to this day, they only eat grubs and insects and monkey meat and so on. They don't even have the knowledge that they can plant a seed. But these people, in their absolute ignorance through all of man's various racial stocks from time to time, have understood that there is energy, there are the seasons, there is life, animals reproduce, humans reproduce, the plants reproduce, and they were in awe and sometimes in fear of all this. So they would give back some of their seeds, or they would give back some of their plants, or they would give back some of the corn. And once in a while, they decided to give back a baby. They thought these gods, who sometimes are known to be sharpening their swords on an anvil up in heaven, that's really where the thunder comes from, and the lightning flashes because he's angry. And so if he is angry, we will give him back one of our babies, and they would do that. And they thought that at the very moment that that little child was thrown into that deep water well down here in Nicaragua, or maybe marched up with a high priest to the top of the temple to Teocali in Teotihuacan, and the priest would slice open the breast of a little girl and rip out the still beating heart. That was the instant in time when the whole audience was the most thrilled with what was going on because they knew at that moment the divine wrath had been assuaged that this angry God had been put off a little bit, he'd been pleased, a token that appealed to him had been offered, and they were momentarily in his good graces. Now, you've all studied a little bit of that. You've read and you understand a little bit from everything from Greek mythology to the Toltec, Aztec, Inca, Mayan civilizations of our own uh, Central and South American states, uh, where what some of these people were doing in their attempts, they were sincere, in their sincerest attempts to worship God. So don't misunderstand. You may hear me talk about these horrible things like infant sacrifice, and that's enough said about it. And that is so repugnant to us that we begin to think, well, these were horrible people. These were rotten, brutal, murderous people. I would dare say to you that there was far less crime, far less robbery, far less of all of the various perverse behavior that we see around us today, like pedophilia and rape and kidnapping and so on, down there in Moctezuma's empire, in what is now the capital of Mexico that was in a huge big bog and called Mexico City, there was far less of that kind of thing in some of those what we call savage civilizations than there is in our United States of America today, even though they might have sacrificed an infant from time to time. So, to adjust our minds correctly, these were what, at least in their society, were, quote, good people, law-abiding people, people who thought their chief was a god, people who had their mythology who said that 
their snake god, who is called Quetzalcoatl, would come in a winged vessel of some kind, and that he would be of a different color. And so when the huge galleon came ashore, and here came some of the Spanish conquistadores, they looked at them, they saw that they were different colored, they had far more facial hair, they had these fantastic weapons of harquebuses and guns and knives and swords and so on, and they worshipped these men as if they were a god. And now they thought God was really pleased. Little did they know that white man's diseases and white man's displeasure would virtually annihilate whole races and civilizations of them. So anciently, somebody somewhere sometime thought, I know, the gods will be pleased if we dance. And so they concocted a dance. Now, they were so stupid, they didn't know how to dance the way you see the Western people dancing with cowboy boots and buckle polishing and all that today, where they do what is called line dancing. And you can go on through some of the cable, and you will see one of the cable TNN, and you'll see hundreds of these people doing, well, it's kind of cheap choreography. It's sort of like dance class 101, where people learn how to toe heel, toe heel, dot, 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 and they do that. No, the original dances that the savages did, nowhere near that elaborate. It's been fascinating to me over the years as I've looked. There must have been 742 Indian tribes, greater and lesser, all over the United States. You couldn't even remember but a fraction, maybe 2 or 3 or 5 percent of the names of them. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Hualpai, Havasupai, Toltecs, whether you're talking about the Palas or the Potawatomis. When they are on their reservations performing for the tourists, do you notice something about their dances? You're way ahead of me, right? They're all exactly alike, aren't they? They, they just kind of stomp their feet. Uh, please, I'm not going to demonstrate that. Bend over, you know, go like that. They got eagle feathers and so on, and they just kind of lurch around. The man doesn't hold the woman. There's no box step involved. There's not three up and two back. Not, no heel toe. None of that stuff. They just stamp their feet and just go around in a circle, usually around a fire, because it's warmer that way. And besides that, the audience can see what you're doing if they form a circle around the fire, and everybody has fun. The people who have the most fun, though, are the people who are doing the dancing. Don't ever forget that. They are having the most fun of all. The people sitting down are only seeing some old, cracked, splayed, ugly feet and a lot of ashes and dust and some wilted chicken feathers and so on. But the guys that are doing the dancing, I mean, they are lost in an ecstatic, wondrous excitement and they're really happy expressing their worship. They're worshiping at that moment. Well, somebody decided not only should they dance, but they probably ought to paint their faces. But they didn't have any paint, so they used berry juice and charcoal. Today, sometimes people still do that, and they will get on television and cry, and some of the stuff they put in their face is so thick and so black, it'll even run in black rivulets all the way down their cheeks, and everybody is suitably impressed. There was a t-shirt that came out that was supposed to have been a collision between one of these ladies who was the wife of the famed television evangelist who has now been put away somewhere, and it was just a great big bunch of gobbledygook, and, and, and it looked like red paint and everything, and said somebody I ran into, and the name of the woman was there. Uh, Probably had quite a while, you know, peeling that T-shirt off of her face. So somebody decided they ought to paint themselves. Well, they did that. They painted up. Then somebody sometime, somewhere it started. You've heard of the Gregorian chant? Actually, if you study music, the origin of our Western music began with the Roman Catholic Church. It began with chants 
They will actually tell you, and I think they're in error on this because I believe it was invented long before, perhaps even way, way back in the earliest of the human family, certainly by David's time, if not before, but they will tell you that harmony was unknown until about the 14th century. And the people only sang in monotone, you know, just one theme. They didn't, they didn't sing alto and tenor and bass all together at all until some of these chants came along in the church. And so they thought it would sound really wonderful in a big, hollow cathedral. You could hear it kind of dimly echoing along the corridors. In spiritus sanctum. And everybody is suitably impressed. You know, they hear this, what is that? Well, it's the priest. He's going through the beads and chanting and saying these things, and God's up there. Wow, I sure like that. That's a fantastic chant. I mean... That is one of the happiest chants. And the only trouble is with those chants, nearly always they are in a minor key. They're kind of unresolved dissonance, and they kind of make you unhappy. I don't know if they affect you that way, but a lot of them, they sound lonesome, and they sound lost, and they sound very forlorn, most of them. Don't really sound ebullient and happy and effervescent. Well, today there are all sorts of varieties of this kind of worship at every conceivable extreme. There are those who have taken a vow to never utter another word as long as they live, never whistle, never speak, never sing. And they go along in corridors, going through the beads, contemplating. Now, you know, I can think about everything I need to think about in the course of a few hours by keeping my mouth completely shut. I'm a very verbal person. That would drive me out of my gourd. You would probably, if they put me in solitary, assign, uh, solitary confinement, be able to go by my cell and hear me in there talking or singing to myself because I wouldn't be able to keep quiet that long. And there are all sorts of interesting stories. There's one in Sound of Music about the little girl that was in the nunnery and wanted to get out and so on, and people wondered why she was feeling the way she did. But there are those, and I remember in Mexico City, the cemetery where some of the sarcophagi had glass lids, and you could look down in the little mummified remains of these little ladies who had chosen a vow of silence, and who could only participate in a service in a huge cathedral by coming behind a sort of a filigreed screen and looking down where the priest and the other people were going through the various ceremonies of the Roman Catholic religion as he spoke in Latin to an audience that didn't understand a word he said. And they could not participate. They could only keep quiet. Now, you're thinking to yourself, how terrible. That's awful. Oh, those poor people. Forget it. No, 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 you got it all wrong. They were having fun. Every minute they're going along thinking how silent I am. They were having fun. Let me tell you about the person that stands on a street corner with a couple of magazines, awake and this and that. And you go by and don't even glance at them. They look at you. You haven't hurt their feelings. They're having fun. When they come to your door and try to hold you out some literature and you say, no thanks, and they go away and they will actually take off their shoe and, you know, knock them together and put them back on because they read somewhere that you're to wipe the dust right off of your feet. You haven't hurt their feelings. They are having fun. Because in their own mind, they're doing something that is so right before God, and they feel so good about it. I want to get that across. So those who don't smile and don't appear happy and have had a vow of silence are really having fun. Now, the people who chant, the little boys in the choirs that learn all of these various Gregorian chants in these big churches are having 
fun, even if it is a hollow minor key with unresolved dissonance. Or some people somewhere somehow began to think it would really be fun if we put our hands together and made them into a steeple, because steeples are obviously godly. They, they point to the sky that there may be some other pagan, rather embarrassing origin for those uh, has not occurred to most people, but there is. So they do that, and they decide to please God and make God smile and make God happy by wearing certain kinds of vestments. There are people who believe that way back in Germany, in probably the 17th century, a certain mode of dress, a certain black hat, a certain kind of dark drab dress for men and big, uh, huge dresses all the way to the floor and big high-button shoes for women was the most pleasing mode of dress to God, and they just said, freeze it, just kind of like the coach in a basketball show, you know, just freeze it right there, stop society, don't let it go on. Everything that went before this time from the creation of Adam until this moment over here in Germany and everything that is to happen thereafter until the second coming of Christ is pagan and no good, but at this moment in history, we've got it right. We've got our dress modes right, we've got our form of religion right, and this is the most pleasing to God, and they froze it. And there they are. And you can go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and you can see them going by. Now, they've made a couple of concessions. They got tired of the real, you know, wrenching, jolting ride of old uh, hard rubber or iron wheels or wooden wheels. They did make the concession to have pneumatic tires put on their buggies, but they're going along the road behind horse-drawn drays and enclosed black, all black, coaches wearing black clothing and bonnets and so on, and there they are. They froze that particular most pleasing religion to God and just kept it when it would really be the best and make God the happiest and please God the most. Every extreme of the pendulum isn't there. You ever heard of an Irish wake? Ever been to one? You ever heard of the kind of a jazz festival burial of people who die who are a member of a particular religion down in New Orleans? They got the coffin going down the street, and in front of it is a bunch of leaping, jumping, gyrating jazz musicians playing as the saints go marching in. And they make a really joyous blast. They will, some movies have picked up on this. They will have the corpse propped up in a chair, and they're all belting back a lot of Scotch whiskey and having a wonderful wake, and the dead person is sitting there at the table. You're looking at me like, no. Yeah, they do it, folks. They keep him right there, and they, they have a ball, and they think, this is the most pleasing to God, this is the way God wants it, and we've got it right. Every Sunday morning you can see practically every one of these extremes, can't you? There used to be a Catholic hour called the Rosary Hour. I don't know if it's on anymore. It is on on radio. I've caught it a time or two. And it's merely a recording. They made a recording about 30 years ago, cheapest program on the air. One 30-year-old recording, and they just played endlessly. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. He only said that much. And for 30 years they've been repeating it, and for 15 minutes that goes on, and then you hear the audience saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou. And you don't bless, Hail Mary, full of grace. Oh, no, you don't. Don't you do that. Don't go to sound like a stewardess on American Airlines. You say that right. Because the only way to get God to smile and get him pleased is to say, Hail Mary, full of grace. You do not have fun with your voice on that deal. You, you do it 
the way it makes God smile the most. Now, on Sunday morning television, I can see everything from huge churches and 240 bass voice choirs down to a lady with a banjo. I can see a pedant, a scholar, standing in a huge cathedral, talking as if he had just gotten out of English class of Oxford, who sounds as if he must know everything there is to know about everything. I can see another man who is just mad as a wet hen. He's right down here in East Texas somewhere on my cable. His mouth is even turned down. Hallelujah. And it says right here in the Bible, they always hold the Bible like that, like about to tear the back of the law. Hallelujah. Give me an amen. I'm telling you, brethren, and God is happy today. Hallelujah. The guy is so mad that it looks like he's about to gnaw off his own kneecap. And we will turn around. I'll say, look at this guy. I know, I can't stand it. Turn it off. They're on there. Any of you ever seen that guy I'm talking about? Yeah, well, you're afraid to put your hands in there. I understand. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you publicly that I've, I've, I've caught a few minutes of him because it's kind of entertaining after all. It really is. And, but anyway, then there's a guy that can't get his breath. And he cannot say a word without, after uh, the word. Like Abraham went up to the mountain and, uh, and I don't, I'm looking at a word that says Abraham, but I don't see that uh, after it there. But they've gone to class and it's called wheezing, grunting, groaning, shouting, you know, class. And they learn how to preach that way. I heard those guys, by the way, many of them long since dead. Uh, when I was a little boy, and they were having fun. The people in the little church that I went to up in Scrabble Hill, when a minister got up there and got to jumping up and down and gyrating on that platform so bad that the loose change jumped out of his coat pocket and rolled down on the stage, that, folks, was fun. Now, not for the audience, but he was having fun. It was sure fun for him, because he knew that he was putting on an incredible show and a, a really a great performance. So you can see it all from the man who is so mad uh, and those who are just, you know, it seems, filled with unbridled joy. Uh, way back, you know, before the PTL Club, and a lot of you don't even know what that meant, I guess, the real full title of that program when it got started was Let's Just Praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, that, that was it. And that's all we need to do. We don't need to get dinner. We don't need to go to work. You don't need to drive the truck. You don't need to go to the assembly line. You don't need to plant the corn. You don't need to clean the car. You don't need to do the dishes or, you know, sweep the floor. Let's just praise the Lord. And so that was the title, and that's all they did. They got on there, and they just thought that they were just praising the Lord. And they were bubbly and effervescent and overflowing. Their eyes were flashing and lit up with joy. They were as ebullient and happy and, and uh, excited as a little baby that you play games with and say peekaboo. And there's every extreme, and it's still there today, from total silence, ritual, smoking candles, to unbridled babble, with hundreds in the audience with their hands in the air and shouts of praise the Lord, bless you Jesus, and hallelujah coming from the audience. Which, and I know I'm embarrassing some of you, I understand that, but this is the real world I'm talking about. Which one of these does God like the most? Is that an honest, a valid question? Do I dare ask that question? Which, obviously, every one of these people, don't misunderstand me now, wait a minute. I'm not talking about bad people. 
I'm not talking about anybody except sincere people who believe in what they are doing with all their heart. You've got to know that because nobody would dare get up and make that big of a fool out of himself if he wasn't both believing and sincere. You don't, you don't expose yourself to that kind of ridicule unless you really believe in what you're doing. So my question is, which one of those, which form does God like the most? When is he the happiest? When is the biggest smile on God's face? When is he the most pleased? Let's turn back to the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis for a moment. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Eternal, that's J-H-V-H, the one who became Jehovah, appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am El Shaddai, the Almighty God, and that means El Shaddai, meaning that member of the divine family who in covenant relationship with you is able to bless you bountifully. Look up the Bullinger's Companion Bible on the divine names and titles and the notes that you will see in the margin of these various titles and names of God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Interesting. He was a herdsman. He was a married man. He had no children. He was getting up in age. Lived in a place called Haran that may have been somewhere up near modern Baghdad. God had told him to get out of that country and go to a land that he would show him earlier in the 12th chapter. He has already done that now. He is living down there when God appears before him again and says, walk before me. Now, you know as well as I do that does not mean take short steps, long steps, or anything like that. It means live, conduct your affairs, conduct your marriage, your home, your herds, your cattle, uh, the pitching of your tent, because they lived in goatskin-type tents that were all stitched together and were huge like marquees and pavilions. And uh, it was like a small village when those people went from one place to another. He had many, many manservants and maidservants. I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham immediately raised his hands, danced a little jig, and said, Hallelujah. Well, I misread that on purpose, didn't I? Abram fell on his face. I should imagine so. That would be an awesome thing. It does not say here what he saw. We know because of what Christ said in John the fifth chapter that no man has heard God's voice or seen his face at any time, that this was not God the Father, and there was no literal man-like figure glowing brightly that Abram saw. It is a divine messenger. The first, the voice that he heard may or may not have appeared out of a visible being, and it may have, because a few chapters later we see that the one who became Melchizedek not only appeared, but sat down and ate a meal with Abram, and the Bible proves that that individual who manifested himself as a man is the one who became the Logos of the New Testament, who is said to be the creator, that agent of God the Father who did the creating, and is the individual of the God family who became Jesus Christ. So probably there was a male-like figure there. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was manifesting himself to Abram, who fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. 
So God appeared before Abraham and didn't give him any idea about whether to wear a particular kind of clothing, about his hair length, about whether to put on a particular tapestry and go inside a particular tent, about whether to build something and put some kind of a thing on an altar, about whether to raise his hands or what he was supposed to do. But he did tell him, walk before me, live your life before me, conduct your affairs before me, live your life in my sight and do it perfectly and I'll do all of this for you. Where do you see anything in this that implies that there was something God told Abram, now Abraham, to do, which would make God especially happy? Well, I think what would make him especially happy is when Abram was conducting his affairs with honesty, with integrity, with justice, with mercy, with long-suffering, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, when he was a decent man, when a lovely young girl would walk by, he would simply look the other way, when Abram was fair with his servants, when he was a man of great wisdom, that he was a man of discretion and judgment, and conducted his affairs perfectly, I think God smiled. I think God was pleased. It said Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham listen carefully, never went to a church service in his lifetime. Sorry. Don't mean to shock you. Better check it out. Wasn't any church for him to go to. No Bible to read. No pews to sit in. No special place up front or at the side. He didn't get in a one-horse gray and race the neighbor, you know, to sit there in a pew. Didn't have his children sitting there in little black hats later on, no. Abraham never darkened the door of a church because there was no church in the land in his time. Nobody except the pagans had ever thought they ought to put a impudent steeple sticking up into the air and pretend it meant something. Maybe later on name it Baal Pathor, which has an interesting etymological origin. No, they didn't get around to that. Just walk before me and be thou perfect, God said. If you look at Exodus 19th chapter, we'll turn over a little bit here, just before the giving, by the way, of the Ten Commandments of God, Exodus 19. God told Moses, Verse 3, the middle of it, You shall say this to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. He had completely broken their back economically and militarily, drowned their armies in the Red Sea, brought them out by a crushing series of plagues that had just destroyed the land. And how I bear you on eagles' wings, which proves, by the way, that the twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation, the last few verses, it talks about the woman meaning the church being taken symbolically to a place of safety on eagles' wings is metaphor, metaphor that they walked every step of the way, but God figuratively, because of his protection and because of the way an eagle will teach its eaglet to fly, called it eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, 
then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine. How would you like to be, maybe your name written up in heaven on the book up there that's supposed to contain our name says, peculiar treasure, peculiar meaning special, really extra special treasure. You know, we name our children Pearl. My mother-in-law's name is Pearl. Sometimes name them Opal. I know a very nice woman whose name is Opal. You all do Opal Reese. And we name them after precious treasures sometimes, precious metals and precious jewels. I know girls who are named Jewels. I never met a diamond, but there are lots of rubies around, aren't there? Well, what if your name were precious treasure? Now, we're talking here about pleasing God. We're talking about how to worship God. What makes God smile upon you? You've heard, may his face smile upon you. They repeat that endlessly, you know, from the glass cathedral and so on. But what genuinely makes God smile that you and I can do? There are some people that will tell you that the thing that really makes God smile is if we get up in church and we raise our hands. That is especially pleasing to God. I'm going to put them down because I, I don't like to do that. But they seem to think that it's also pleasing to God if we give little testimonies, especially in church. Now, I think, personally, the time for testimony is either over a cup of coffee or after dinner or over a glass of wine with a meal at the Feast Tabernacles when somebody says, you know, I really feel that God has been especially good to me this year because of A, B, C, and D. But no, no, that doesn't go down very well some people. They want to stand up in church and get it off their chest because that is far more fun doing it in church in an audience than it is privately and quietly to a beloved member or a friend or a member of the family. So God says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll become a peculiar treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to tell the children of Israel. So he told them what God had commanded them and told them about the mountain and to be ready. And we see the quaking of the mountain and then in the, tenth, uh, the 20th chapter, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He said, I am the eternal your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm first. You shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, obviously making likenesses for the purpose of bowing down, serving, and worshiping as if they are supposed to look like a god of some kind. For I, the eternal thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the lawlessness, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? Deformity, disease, sickness. Ignorance, squalor, poverty, failure, all kinds of misshapen, malformed, sometimes handicapped people as a result of what? Human sins. Now, I've got news for you. In the Garden of Eden, or just outside after they got kicked out, under a rock did not exist the germs that cause shangroid. You believe that's true? I, can prove, I believe that logic tells you that's true. The bacteria that cause genital herpes and warts 
was not festering under a particular rock somebody turned over somewhere on the way out of the Garden of Eden. I, I think you can accept that. Well, what about syphilis? What about gonorrhea? And what about AIDS? None of that stuff existed back then. You know where it came into existence? By filthy lack of human hygiene. So you shall not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. He visits the lawlessness, the sins of the fathers, sometimes generations later. They've got to suffer because of civilizations and people who hate God. Little girl, as a result of a high school that took a vote, and there were like 400 and some of them, said, yes, we'd like to hear a prayer now and then in our school. You know why? Because there were kids toting guns in that school. Because there were kids getting pregnant, and kids who were truant and dropping out, and kids who were joining gangs, and kids who were using drugs, and all kinds of problems. About 50-some voted, no, they didn't want to hear a prayer. 400 and some voted, yes, they did. She got on the intercom, you heard this probably, it's been in the news, last night and again this morning. Her prayer was, Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon this school, upon our parents, and upon our nation. In your name, amen. Thinking of the Jews, didn't even use the name of Jesus. Prayer must have taken all of five seconds. You have never seen... Last night, there was a female ACLU lawyer sitting there getting in the face of the governor of that state, and she was so absolutely furious, I think if she could have whipped out a knife, she would have cut his throat. She wouldn't let him talk. She interrupted him. She was all over him like a sack of wildcats. She was furious with him because he said that that was a democratic move, that the majority wanted it, there was nothing wrong with prayer. American... Civil Liberties Union. Who ruled in this case when the principal got kicked out and the students are boycotting school? The minority did. Fifty to over 400 and some. Fifty of them didn't want to hear that. That really irked them. Here's some reference to God. 400 and some did. Majority doesn't rule in this country anymore. The liberals do. Well, that's another subject, but I'm talking about what pleases God. He said, He's showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Eternal your God in vain, for the Eternal will not hold him guiltless to take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Six days shalt thou labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. I won't read them all, but then he goes through these commands. Honor your father and your mother. You're not to murder. The Hebrew word is rothsack. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not desire illicitly coveting your neighbor's house, his wife, his employees, any of his animals, his car, anything that is your neighbor's. And the people heard this. Those are the laws of God, and those comprise what the covenant was all about. The covenant was an agreement between God and the people to keep these laws. What made God the happiest? When they kept his laws. What made them the happiest? When they kept his laws. If they kept his laws, no pedophilia, no theft, no fornication, no adultery, no crime, no failures. Everybody's farm, everybody's orchard, everybody's herd of cattle increased exponentially. 
Nothing but blessings and endless cornucopia benefits for observing God's law. Find in that, if you can, funny clothing, funny hairdos, like a little bald spot. Some of them think a bald spot in the very back is best. I saw a whole group of them being ordained in the uh, basilica called Il Duomo in Milano, Italy, one time when a man who later was to become Pope, I found, uh, was there, Montini. They think just one little spot right back here. You shave that bald, God looks down, oh man, I like that little spot. That's a wonderful hairdo. Look at there. Got his little spot in place. Others think just bald is better. You just shave it all off. Oh, man, look at there, a bald. There's a, one of my bald buddies there. Uh, shaved his head. Others think it's a mohawk. Leave a strip down the middle. The Egyptians thought that their princes ought to have just a hank of it hanging down the side. Oh, look at there, a hank down the side. That's really pleasing to me. Makes God smile. Human beings do crazy things with their hair, with their facial hair. They do crazy things with their clothing and crazy things with their bodies. They tattoo them. They paint them. They disfigure them. Now, a lot of people take issue with me acting like this about some of these societies, but there are those who probably would have been sitting around, and if they could have, they would have probably killed Elijah about the fourth time he taunted the prophets of Baal. They would have thought how sincere the Baal worshippers are. The little old lady over there, oh, Baal, 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 Baal. Another one, oh, Baal! doing everything they could, screaming, cutting themselves with lancets, leaping and dancing. Go ahead, maybe he's on a journey. Scream louder, he can't hear you. Oh, that's a good idea. Scream louder, Henry. Okay, Baal, do you hear me? Read it in the 18th chapter of 1 Kings. Oh, Elijah is sitting there looking at them in amazement. Hey, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's, maybe he's hunting. Maybe he's pursuing. you got to wake him up. I'll tell you what, there are a lot of people who like to think they're religious who would have hated Elijah at that moment. But you better read your Bible and see what God did to people that hated Elijah. What did he do to the people that hated Elisha? Including young kids who came along and tried to make fun of him and say, you bald-headed old so-and-so. A couple of bears took care of them. Fire came down from heaven, and finally when the last one of the group that came with 50 said, Look at all these charred bodies. They look like so many matchsticks lying around there. Oh, man of God, let not thy wrath be upon me. I'm sorry, the king sent me. Don't be angry at me, but here's what he told me to tell you. Finally, God got their attention. It shows me what a prophet of God did, how he reacted, how he felt, how he performed in the face of rank, stupid idolatry. And it shows me how God reacted to those who reacted against him. Let me turn to 1 Samuel 15.22. 1 Samuel 15.22. Go back and get the picture right quickly of what is required of us, what pleases God, what God wants us to do. This was in the case where Saul had directly disobeyed what God told him to do and kept all the people and the cattle alive, and then had the gall to tell Samuel he'd done the right thing. And when Samuel saw it, he ordered Agag to be hewn in pieces, and I can't imagine what some people who fancy they are religious would have thought about Samuel doing that. Can you? A lot of stuff, you know, a lot of things in the Bible that are very, very tough for religious people to deal with. Let me say that again. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are very tough for religious people to deal with. 
religious people. A lot of religious people don't approve of God. A lot of religious people don't approve of God's prophets. A lot of religious people don't. There are religious people who would have killed Elijah. There are religious, religious people who would have killed Samuel for hacking up old Agag. Agag had kids. Probably never could forgive his mother, naming a guy Agag, for pity's sake. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and sheep of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the eternal thy God in Gilgal, he said. And Samuel said this, has the eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, is there anything more satisfying? Not to you, not to me. We're of a different society. To me, it's repugnant. I don't mind eating a steak. I don't want to be there in the chute when the cattle come through and the guy's got a 22 Magnum, bang, flop, drag it away, bang, flop, drag it away. I don't want to watch that. don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about the time when they heard all the 10,000 chickens in on the metal plate. Mm -hmm electrocute them, they fall down dead, put them in a big rubber machine, they go through, the blood's frozen instantly right inside the tissues, so when you gnaw the leg, it's all dark, red, and bloody right next to the bone. I don't want to know about that. Matter of fact, if there's any way I can get a kosher chicken instead of that kind of a chicken, because God says don't eat the blood, I try to avoid it anyway. But I am not a vegetarian. I cannot abide, and I couldn't stand it when I heard that one of our ultra-religious guys, who actually was in the WCG ministry years ago, took a bunch of families and kids up to a farm near Bakersfield and decided this is just how far it went when they decided to really observe a wonderful night to be remembered. Had all little kids gather around. I'm sure it was really exciting, and he enjoyed it more than anybody. Took this little lamb and slit its throat. Watch the little kids. Well, <laughs> you ever been there when they've done that? I have. I've heard them trying to breathe through a ruptured esophagus while the blood's spurting out. I'm sorry. Little children are watching that. I was so disgusted with that guy, I could have put him in a racquetball court, put on some boxing gloves, and taught him a lesson. It made me sick to subject little children to a sacrifice. What I'm getting at is, people love sacrifices if they think God is pleased, God is smiling, God must really like this, as they slice the throat of a bull or a goat. They always loved it. They loved it here. What does your eternal say, the one who became Christ? Has the eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal? Behold, to obey, keep the Sabbath, etc., is better than sacrifice. And the hearken is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, rebellion? But they were sacrificing. Rebellion? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as of iniquity and idolatry. They had their form of religion. They were going to stick to it. Saul had his form of religion. It was the form of the priest, and he was going to stick to it. It didn't matter what God told him to do. Annihilate them all, including Agag. Why? Because Agag was kind of the Saddam Hussein of his day. Because he was a rotten, filthy mass murderer, a sacrificer of children, a man who didn't deserve to draw breath. Because he was the model, the role model of the entire people and the entire false religion, God wanted him and all those people annihilated, and instead Saul kept him alive. And then he decided, I'll really please God. I'll sacrifice. God wasn't pleased, was he? And there's what God says about it.
Now, if you'll turn to Jeremiah 7 and verse 22. This is certainly one that I think all of God's people have for many, many years memorized because it is an extremely important scripture in understanding the whole concept of law and grace and of the Old and the New Covenant and whether or not Jesus Christ allegedly nailed the laws of God to his cross. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings under your sacrifices and eat flesh. In other words, go ahead and light the fire under the ox and carve up a New York cut steak and enjoy it because that's all the good you're going to get out of it. Doesn't matter a bit to me. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. And he didn't, did he? Because we just read that, didn't we? And we read the Ten Commandments, and we read his proposal of the covenant. And we are learning in the Apostle Paul's writing, especially in Galatians, that it, that is the Torah, the book of the law, the sacrifices, was added because of transgressions, and the transgressions were the breaking of the Ten Commandments of God, and the law that was added was just like adding a splint to a broken femur to heal it up. And when the healing came in terms of Christ's arrival and his sacrifice, then the splint could be removed, and so the sacrifices were taken away. And this is a very important scripture as to what God wants, what is pleasing to God. I would submit to you that slitting the throat of a wonderful, cute little baby goat that you've raised up on a baby bottle and watching it die, if that thrills some people, is nowhere... You would think it would be actually more pleasing to God, I guess, than simply, let's say, a man or a woman getting up on this platform and breaking out in the middle of a song and uh, beginning to give you a little testimony and then maybe waving their hands around a little bit. Or maybe me interrupting myself in the middle of a sermon and saying, Give me an amen. You know, I've seen these guys on Sunday morning do that. They get away with it. But the audience is ready for it. The audience, wait, when, when's he going to wait? Any moment now, we're going to get to say, hey, there it comes. Hallelujah. You ever been in an outfit like that? You ever seen that? We went to one when I was 23, I think. And A.A. Uh, a. Allen was his name. I've written about him in the Real Jesus book, about the gal that was trying to get her brother to jump up on the chair with her. And he wouldn't do it. He was embarrassed, so she did it. But boy, did she fool A.A. A. Allen. You know what he did? He was so fooled that he told the whole audience it was direct from God. And I'd heard her plotting it out with her brother, so I knew, knew better than that. She was sitting right in front of me, and she was pretending to speak in tongues. She was just making all kinds of, Ill, you know, illegible, uh, you couldn't, incomprehensible gibberish and blatherings. And then she told her boy brother when she sat down, it's easy. See, I can do it. She was a little overweight, looked like, you know, the pink elephant in tight standing on the chair, giggling around and making all these sounds. He took time out to get a drink of water from the Lord. Must have been 5,000 people in that huge tent. That was my first introduction uh, to that kind of tent camp revival in 1953 in a big vacant lot out in eastern Los Angeles when John and Audrey Hill and my wife and I surely went down there just out of curiosity, went in the back. And I guarantee you, the way we were dressed with a suit on and sat down, we got lots of very hard, suspicious looks from the ushers. They knew we were up to something, and they didn't know what. And when they saw us sitting there quietly and not jumping up and down like the other people, there were several of us being watched. I mean, there were several of them watching us uh, with jaundiced eye. So we were careful to behave ourselves and not get in any trouble. But it certainly did illustrate something to me about the way some people conduct themselves, themselves, and I'm sure they thought 
that that was wonderful and that God really enjoyed that. In Colossians 3, 15 to 17, is that the scripture, that's the scripture that most of them use, is that the one that tells us that we ought to engage in what is called praise worship? Now, praise worship is a modern phenomenon that came from the Protestant church, that came from the Pentecostal movement within the Protestant church, and every now and then finds its way into every kind of church, including the Roman Catholic church where they've had their hands full with certain charismatic movements. No church has ever been uh, somehow immune to that. Do you understand where the word Quaker came from? You're all familiar with that? From quaking. You knew that, did you not? Well, study the... We had to do that in college many, many years ago. I don't know how this could happen, but now that I look at some of these people allegedly dancing on MTV, I'm beginning to get more enlightened, but I read the story of a woman whose hair uh, was so long she could sit on it, who was gyrating and quaking and flopping her head forward and then back so rapidly that her hair actually made a snapping sound, which would probably put you or me in the hospital with a dislocated neck, if not break your neck and let you sink to the floor dead, so there may have been some other force or some other power that was there. But this, this is in the history of the American Episcopal movement. It goes all the way back to everything from Madame Blavatsky and the Fox Sisters and Theosophic Society of America to the Episcopal Church, to the Quaker Church, to the early Methodist Church, to the early Baptists and other church groups. And I'm here to tell you, when I was a boy, my father had to deal with it, and the ministry of the Church of God, Seventh Day, had to deal with it. There were those who wanted to influence the whole church so that church consisted of a wonderful, music-filled ceremony where the audience was all taking part. They were maybe marching around, and I'll fly away, and so on. And there were timbrels, and everybody had a musical instrument, and everybody had a testimony, and everybody had something to, to say, and there was quite a performance going on. And they wanted church services to become that way. I don't want to shock you. I'm not going to talk about any person or any group or any part of the country, but we've had here and there around the edges people who have wanted so badly to do that. And I say about them, as I said about everybody else I've talked about, they are so very sincere. They are absolutely dedicated and sincere. They believe with all of their hearts that the one moment in time when God smiles is when they do this. That is what really pleases God. That's what is in their minds. Some of them get it from this scripture. Verse 15 of uh, Colossians 3, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, through which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Did you read anywhere in that verse, in church? Being technical for a moment. It says, teaching and admonishing one another. Does it say in church? Does it say the woman is to teach and admonish the man, and furthermore, is to do it 
on the platform, behind the podium, in church. Does it say that? Well, mine doesn't say that. Psalms. There are many, many psalms in the Bible. My Uncle Dwight tried to put many dozens of them to music. There is the Song of Moses and Miriam at the triumph of the Israelites after they came through the Red Sea. There are laments, like Lamentations of Jeremiah, would be a very sad song indeed. They're very happy songs. The word praise is used throughout the Bible, I imagine, hundreds of times, and you will find it more often than anywhere else in the Psalms of David. Now, a while ago, we stood up and we sang, and we sang a couple of songs that I really enjoy. I tried to sing at least three different parts. I could hear Ron Dart's bass behind me, and I was lapsing every now and then into bass and back into tenor and back into kind of an, uh, a lower register alto, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the words, and I heard all of you singing, and I thought, that was really nice. Do you know what that is? That's called praising God in song. You know the word praise comes from a neho, and the Greek word that is used in Hebrews 2.16, to which we're going to turn in a moment, is humneo, H-U-M-N-E-O, from which we take the English word hymn. When it says, I will praise thee in the midst of the congregation, I will sing an hymn to thee. Do you know, originally the word means, ahineo means a story, relating a story to you, but it is a laudatory story. When you laud, this is applaud, which giving your laud or your praise to someone in recognition of something they have done and something that is a very great value and something for which you are thankful and grateful. Let's turn now to another scripture that they will oftentimes use to justify that kind of activity in Hebrews 2 and verse 12. This is a very important one, and you will see it in some of the literature that has to do with praise worship. It says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Who's the I? Well, let's read up to it. <clears throat> For it became him, verse 10, For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he who is Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, Christ saying, I will declare thy name. John, Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, you or me, the name of his brethren, unto my brethren, his fellow servants, his brethren, sons of God, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Christ, in the midst of the church, which in this sense is the spiritual body of individuals who are called out of this world, who are scattered all over the world. And again, I will put my trust in him, Christ saying he will put his trust in God. And again, behold I, Christ says, and the children which God has given me. That is talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, praising God the Father in the midst of all the called out ones and recognizing them as his brethren by name. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. 1 Corinthians 14. I can't read it all. I wish I could because it is a very important chapter. It's talking about the most important gifts. It talks about tongues, not unknown. That is added by the translators, but it talks about those who 
all love to do that, and the Apostle Paul is showing that that was not to be done unless it was to the edifying of the church. The edifying of the church. He says in verse 6, Brethren, if I come unto you speaking with languages, what, will it, what good will it do you? What shall I profit you, except I speak either by revelation, something that has been revealed to me, or by knowledge, imparting knowledge to you, or by prophesying, foretelling something that's going to happen, or by doctrine, expounding a doctrine of the church. And even things without life giving sound, whether a pipe or a harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, then who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. We do not permit, out of the pulpit or from the floor, babbling in gibberish that people call tongues. I know that is not upsetting to 99.99% of the congregation of the church at large. But I know that if you want to enjoy that kind of thing, you can sure do it tomorrow morning. It's all over the place. There are churches all over Tyler where they're going to be doing that tomorrow morning and having the biggest time, the biggest blast, and the people who are speaking are getting the most fun out of it of all, just like the dancers or the eagle feathers. They're the people really having fun, more so than the audience by far. Now, he says in verse 11, If I don't know the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaks a barbarian. True. They don't know what in the world is going on. And he that speaks shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so, ye, forasmuch as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaks in a language, the word unknown is supplied and does not belong there, pray that he might interpret. If I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. People have tried to get around that by claiming, oh, but he knows what he's saying. No, no, not always. He may not. He may just be pouring out his heart and having a feeling or a mood of praise and of adoration and of worship and of thanksgiving toward God and not really understand what is coming out of his mouth. He only feels that. And Paul is not putting that down. He's saying, do it quietly, do it privately. What I say then, if I pray with the Spirit, that I may pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. And if there's no understanding, no interpretation, then don't do it. Else when shall you bless with the Spirit? When you shall bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say, Amen, meaning, so be it, Lord, I agree with you, at the giving of thanks, seeing that he understands not what you say. For you verily give thanks well. You really do give thanks well, no question about that. But the other is not edified. You're having fun, but he's not getting any good out of it. I thank my God I speak with languages more than you all, Paul said. He didn't write any of them down. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also, than 10,000 words in a, in a language. There are other people who will virulently, violently, angrily disagree with that statement. They would rather, with all of the fiber of their being, speak in gibberish that is un incomprehensible than to speak 
you know, 20 words that people can understand because it's far more fun. Why is it fun? Because they're putting something on display. What are they displaying? Well, they're displaying what people think is, quote, spirituality. A sort of a Bible Belt, Southeastern American version of pseudo-autoeroticism, which is nothing more than someone spiritually and excitedly inside himself, enjoying himself, uh, worshiping himself, walking through the proverbial hallway of mirrors, hoping to encourage the belief in the congregation at large that this is the most spiritual person, maybe he's an angel unawares, the most spiritual person you've ever met, and they just bask in that aura of glory and they love it. But Paul says, and I'm going to have to agree with him, I would rather speak five words and get a point across and stand up here for one hour and babble. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Now, I'm going to come to a scripture where you're going to say with me, it's a good thing Paul is dead. Good thing Paul is not here to answer for what he wrote, and it's going to get him in an awful lot of trouble. I can't help it. I believe that I'm God's servant. This is God's word. I'm going to have to read it to you. So, everybody, forgive Paul, and I'm speaking facetiously, forgive God, I'm speaking facetiously, and forgive me in advance. I'm going to read it to you. He says, verse 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm? You worked on it a long time, really enjoy it. It's a great, great idea, baby, of yours. You've got a doctrine, got an idea. Let me show you about this. Let me show you this in the Bible. You've got a language, got something you want to display, something you want to put out there for everybody to enjoy, something you want to get up in front of the audience and tell them about. you got a revelation. You have an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying, because what was going on was several were speaking at once, and pretty soon you had a competition going, which was the greatest revelation, which was the most exciting tongue, which was the most glorious psalm, which was the best doctrine, which was the most esoteric, the most mysterious. If any man speak in a language, let it be two of them or at the most, three, and that in order, one after another, by course, not all at once, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let another judge. That really does not show you the standard church service we have today, and I hate to alarm anyone, but I'm here to tell you that the format of the services are dependent upon a combination of two things, American Protestant culture and church tradition. But because God has given the power of binding and loosing, and tradition having been established for many, many decades in God's church, that tradition has become exactly that, and God honors that in the Bible, and I'll show you that in a moment. But you cannot show me a single scripture from Genesis to Revelation that says that we shall conduct church format in exactly the way we do, with music, with special music, sometimes with a sermonette or with a Bible study first, or however we might want to do it, and then announcements, and then a sermon, and then a song, and then a prayer. You can't show it. It isn't there. What you can show is right here that sometimes there were two or three people sitting with a crowd around, and one man would talk, and iron sharpens iron, and another would be thinking, he would say, yes, Brother Henry, now let me explain something. 
And a third would say, wait a minute, I want to clarify a point. And the other two would say, yes, go ahead, John. And he would talk. And I have been on platform after platform after platform for many, many years. I used to take the sermon, the sermonette, and the Bible study for years, probably 10, 12 years at the old Shakespeare Club and back in the college library and at the Pasadena Gymnasium in the early years of the church. We used to have that very format. At a minimum, two that were sitting there sharing a Bible study and fielding questions that were written in and passed in from the audience. And it was a very enjoyable time. And we did that. So it's to be in order. And if there's no interpreter and somebody even had that gift, nobody does today that we know of, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself. Nothing wrong with that. And to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let him first hold his peace. For you all may prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits, meaning spiritual gifts, listen carefully, of the prophets are subject to the prophets, not the other way around. The spiritual gift is not in charge. The spiritual gift doesn't take over. Some people will tell you, that, oh, if I were to hold my peace, the very rocks would cry out. Well, you go ahead and let them cry out. I want to listen to rocks next time. Sure don't want to listen to you. Now, you know, you sometimes have to handle it that way because people will give you every excuse that you can imagine because they've come from that background and they are, they're just dead dog determined that they're going to have their way and they're going to put on display before the people their spirituality. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now, I'm coming to it. So, as I said, forgive Paul and God and me all in advance, because this is going to really hurt a couple of people. And I can't help it. I just can't help it. But I'm going to say to you right now, the next time I, Garner Ted Armstrong, am ever sitting in an audience, I don't care what church we're talking about, any place in this country, and a woman gets up on a platform and starts to speak, she's coming off that platform in exactly one and one-half seconds. That's about how long it'll take me to get up there and get hold of her arm. Okay? My mind, in special music, in choral, in a woman standing there and giving special music is one thing, but trying to preach from it, explain the meaning, and go through all these programs and give a little sermonette about it, that is something else. And it says here in the Word of God, and I'm responsible for it, now this may cost me a couple of real nasty letters, and please pray for me because they do hurt. I take them personally. I don't want to get them, but I'll guarantee you they're going to be on the way in the next few weeks. But it says here, let your women keep silence in the churches. It is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. That just happens to be God's word, God's law. It's the way it is. I didn't write it. I'm not its author, but I am responsible for it, and I shall uphold it. What? Came the word of God out from you? Did we invent it? Did we put it out here on the world scene? Or came it unto you? Didn't we receive it when we were lost in spiritual Babylon and darkness only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Now, finally, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 2 right quickly. <coughs> Pardon me to conclude here. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. Interesting language. Whether by word, that's mere word of mouth from God's apostles, 
He's not quoting chapter and verse. He's not saying Exodus 12, whether by word or our letter, a letter that was a circular letter that went out to the church. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul appealed to church tradition, which God's apostles who had known Jesus Christ personally had established in the church, and it did carry weight. Now, in chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brethren, because they had some freeloaders there, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. We have maintained the tradition that has been established from the time before I was ever born. My father maintained the tradition that he inherited that was established in the Church of God Seventh Day with a couple of minor exceptions. We do not now have a great big placard of the Ten Commandments on the wall, and we do not stand up and in unison read it every Sabbath morning or every Sabbath afternoon. That's about the only difference. We don't have Wednesday night Bible testimonials, and that didn't last very long, but I remember it in some of those places. But that's when he was not necessarily the pastor in charge of that church. You will find that the church services are almost identical to those in a worldwide church. They're very close to those in the Baptist church, the Methodist church, and many other churches, even though they may observe Sunday. There's not a lot of difference. Why do you suppose that is? Well, it's on the basis of honor to whom honor and custom to whom custom, and I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I don't want people coming in off the street seeing such a babble of confusion, things that so saw against what they're accustomed to that so outrage them, so alarm them, so turn them off, that they say, I'm never coming back to that place. And we have had it happen, brethren. We've had it happen many times. That shouldn't ever happen. It doesn't need to happen. So, we obey these things. We do exactly what God says in 1 Corinthians 14. And we will not ever see that happen again. Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received from us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For, <coughs> pardon me, we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Paul appeals to oral tradition. Now, if you're wondering where is the authority for all of this, right there. That's it. I just read it to you. Now, let me give you, in closing, my version of praise worship. It's a farmer in a field on a bright spring day. The birds are singing, and he's on his tractor plowing the black soil with a smell of loam in his nostrils. And he remembers when he walked by the kitchen window, his wife was baking an apple pie that day. And he's got 40 acres, and he knows that he's got the seed to plant. The weather looks good. His children are healthy, and his wife is by his side. And he's planting his field, and his heart is so full that as he's going down that row on that tractor, he's singing, How great thou art, how great thou art. Thank you, God, for my 40 acres. Thank you, God, for this good land. Thank you, God, for my wife and my children. Praise your holy name. It's that wife in the kitchen who would peel those apples that is thankful for that tree, 
and for husband on that tractor and for that black fertile loam on 40 acres and is saying, thank you, God, for my wonderful husband that I see out there going back and forth, working hard to plant these acres. It's a grandparent the first time his granddaughter ever looks up at him and says, Papa, and thanks God. It is a boy with a fishing pole by a stream on his family farm who is delighting in the beauty of the day and the little brim in the stream and everything that is good and wonderful and decent that he can enjoy. The other night I called my wife in. She didn't want to come, and I had her sit down and say, you got to see this, and I could hardly talk when I did because the Mormon Tabernacle Choir was singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And I have sung all of my life. I've studied voice for over eight years, and I've done solos and concerts, and I've done the entire bass oratorios and arias and so on, and sang every number with a choir of the Messiah and the Elijah. That Hallelujah Chorus never fails to inspire me. Sure, they were Mormons, but they sat there singing in those beautiful voices, The Lord God Omnipotent reigneth. And I'm thinking of the mayhem and the bloodied bodies and the missing children and the pedophiles and the rapists and the arsonists and the murderers I've heard about in the last week. And I'm hearing these 240, whatever they are, voices singing these magnificent lines to God right out of the book of Isaiah. And I've got tears just streaming down my face, and I can't even get my breath. And I'm thinking, that's right. When the God omnipotent, all-powerful rules on this earth will have an end to this crime and this violence and this suffering and will have peace at last, and I was just goose pimply with it. That's my form of praise worship. I hope God's church agrees that that's the time when God is maybe a little more pleased than at other times.